Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are continuing in uh, stories that are going to feel a little bit repetitive for you, but that's just how Chronicles and Samuel is going to work. And uh, and so uh, we, we start with First Chronicles this past week and then move into Second Samuel. Uh, and we see the ark uh, being taken uh, into Jerusalem. So it's a, a, a pretty big event for the history of Israel and um, yeah. enough that inspires a whole lot of dancing and partying. But um, yeah. Right. Like we talked about this with Moses. Again, we're seeing this picture of daily worshiping reestablished in Israel. And we saw this. We really haven't seen this happen since the time that Moses was leading Israel. Maybe Joshua as well. It's hard to know. Uh, but this is a really exciting kind of regeneration time. The chronicler here is looking back and saying, hey, remember how great it was in those early days. We can get that back again. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, teaching for the crowd, the audience of Chronicles of like the reestablishment of worship uh, in Jerusalem. And so uh, they're telling about the first story of that and now they're, they're going to be living out another story of it. And so David, yeah, reestablishes worship, reinstalls the priesthood, gives out food for all the Israelites. So he's learned a lesson or two from college ministries <laughs> of, hey, if you want people to show up, give them some food. And, um, and then... Uh, Commissions basically uh, one of a one of the more famous psalm writers uh, in Asaph to to write a song. Yeah, it was cool. I just kind of stepped back and thought, what if David hadn't done that? What if we didn't have these worship leaders or someone like Asaph? Our Bible would look so different. Um, and the other thing that stood out to me is there was a passage that talked about how Israel every day would invoke, thank, and praise the Lord. And, you know, God has given us these cycles that we live within, whether it is the cycles of season or weeks or um, birthdays and, or sleeping and waking, whatever. But it's all centered around Him and worship of Him. And so for us to like maybe just take a couple minutes and step back and think about what worshiping God looks like in your regular cycle of life that you live. Yep. And so David uh, has a song of thanks and um, it's, it's talking through the covenant with Abraham. It's talking to Jacob. It's talking about how this small nation became a big nation. Um, and because of all these things, because of what God has done in the past that they would continually or endlessly or day to day, whatever it is, um, respond and, and worship. Just like Sarah said, the, the rhythm of continual worship. Yeah. And we've seen in the past what happens to Israel is when they stop seeking God every day, there is a slow fade into sin and there's a loss of identity in being God's people. And so this is the same for us, you guys. Uh, we need a regular daily practice of considering, and remembering and praising God in our lives so that we don't have these slow fades into sin or forgetting to acknowledge. God. Yep. And so we have a king, we have a priesthood, we have an ark. It's all going awesome. And um, that's what we're meant to see. David's going to go back home and we're, we're hopeful, even though uh, we've read enough Old Testament books to, to <laughs> maybe have our fingers crossed a little bit. But it seems like we're heading in the right direction. Worship's established. Things are going well. Yeah, it must have felt so different for Israel to be going home from worshiping with David as their king versus Saul as their king. And I bet they, my guess is that they were just filled with so much hope and excitement as to what what Israel could become under David's rule. And so we get David kind of scoping out his pa palace there. And um, it's hard to know his motivations. It's hard to know whether he felt guilty that his palace was so amazing and God's wasn't, whether he just wanted to honor God and it was like a right motive. Um, but he, he sort of responds going, look, I got to build 
got a house. He shouldn't just be in this tent. And at first, Nathan's like, sure, David, do what you want. And then sort of God kind of stops that later going like, hold up, hold on, let's talk about this. And um, there's language all throughout this, mm-hmm. what, what is the Davidic covenant section um, of, of God saying, look, I've taken you like you were herding sheep. You, you, Wherever you've gone, I've gone with you. I've gone tent to tent, dwelling to dwelling. There's a lot of language around God's mobility here, even telling him like, look, like I didn't tell any of the prophets, like I wasn't mad at any of the prophets that you guys hadn't built me a house yet. Like this isn't, this isn't the goal. This isn't what I was after. Like, I don't, I don't need a house. And then he flips it on David immediately going, all right, I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to make your name great. And, and through your line, is there going to be um, this, this kingdom, this kingship that's going to last forever? And so um, there's a little bit of tension to me of like the temple and whether they, should have built it or whether it was ever really commanded by God. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, there's always that tension. And even, even with Solomon, because the end of the Lord's covenant here in verse 11, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you walk with your father. So when David dies, um, I will raise up an offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom and he shall, uh, he, he shall build a house for me. So at first it sounds like, well, he's the one who's going to build the, the temple. But then he says, and I will establish his throne forever which doesn't sound like Solomon. That's our son, like Jesus. I will be a f- his father. He will be to me a mm-hmm. son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from you um, or from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Now that doesn't sound as much like Solomon as it most does sound like Jesus. And so um, I even think Solomon's like, well, I think I'm supposed to build the temple. And, and I think God's promise to them is like, look, like I'm David, I'm going to make a house through your name and and it's ultimately going to come through Jesus. So, so there's a little bit of tension to me around the building of the temple and whether they really should have, I don't think it was sin to do it. Um, but cause it's going to create all sorts of um, theological problems for Israel later on when they're like, uh, when they get kicked out of the temple and, and they're in into Babylon, there's sort of the question of what do we do? How do we worship? And God having to remind them that he's mobile, that he's not conf- confined to a building in Jerusalem. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I hope you kind of got to this idea of like the messianic part of this pointing to Christ on your own as we continue to practice looking for the gospel in the Bible. This is kind of low hanging fruit. And we even see the author of Hebrews talk about it in Hebrews one, but this is the pointing to the fact that there's this going to be this perfect King and Messiah. And so David is this type or this picture of Christ, but this excitement, I don't know. I'm excited about the fact that this temple was not just a temporary building to be built by David's son, but we are now the temple of God, which we'll talk about right. in a few weeks. And, and this is the, the passage that becomes so crucial for the gospel writers to connect the lineage of Jesus to David or for people to come around and, and refer to, to Jesus as the son of David. And so, um, yeah, yeah his, his, the whole kingship messianic idea is going to be fleshed out in, in the, the Psalms and the prophets as well. But um, it, it's, it's really heavily started right here. Mm-hmm in this promise. Yeah. And then we get David respond in, in a way that seems he's like confounded, confounded and humbled. And he's like, who, who am I that you would even do that God? And, and who is Israel that you even picked Israel out initially? Like what, what do we actually bring to the table? And we really have nothing, but we've for whatever reason found favor with you. And um, it's awesome. 
Yeah, I, I just I I'm really enjoying reading Chronicles. Actually, I think some parts of it, like you know, all those genealogies, can be really dry, but we're also kind of seeing like the highlight reel of this time, and we see that these examples of prayer and what a relationship with God can look like, and uh, David's humility and his awe as he received God's receive. You know, David wants to offer something to God, and God in return says, "I, I don't want that. I want to bless you. I want to give you an even greater gift." And David knows he's unworthy, but he receives a gift from God. Um, and this idea around God's people really stuck out to me, remembering that that Israel is God's people, not because they are a specific race, so they are descended from Abram or Abraham, but because they all are united together in worship of God. And so there are people from every nation or many nations at this point who have joined in with Israel to worship Yahweh. And that's what makes them a people. And that's where this temple is going to dwell and what the central component of this whole society is going to be. And so I think there's two lessons for us here. And the first one is is David's response to God. God has offered him something unbelievable and David could never come close to repaying him for that. And and for us, this is salvation. This is to be our response. Um, we respond to God in offering us this amazing gift of salvation in humility and awe. Even though we cannot repay God for it, we receive it and glorify God. Um, and second, just remember that we are part of a nation of believers and uh, it's not just who you can see, but it's the world around us of who are all this family in Christ together and that we are centered around the worship of Yahweh. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and it's it's um, this is the heyday of Israel's history. And so uh, even to this day, I mean, the, the national symbol is the star of David. And um, mm. even the chronicler is like, oh, remember, remember these sweet days that we had uh, when David was on the throne, worship was happening. All this stuff was, was where it, where we thought it should be. This was like the most shalom they are going to experience um, outside of Jesus and certainly outside of eternity. And so, um, yeah. And so, but it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a marker for them. This, yeah. The story of David taking the throne. So then the author here is like, all right, we've got the temple. God's going to like give him a throne forever. Also, David was awesome. Yeah, war. <laughs> he's 3-0 and in his first victories. Uh, he takes out Philistines, the Moabites, and this king from Zobah. And um, yeah, he's successful. And and we hear about, uh, without a whole lot of commentary, but uh, we hear about them gathering a whole lot of stuff out of all their victories, horses, silver and gold and all this kind of stuff. And so, um, yes, deliverance is happening. Successful victories are happening. But there's also this undercurrent of, of wealth and goods that's, that's continuing to be built, which might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. I, I don't know. I, I, we'll see how the story plays out. But um, yeah, David's certainly having his victories through all this. Mm-hmm. And he's ruling with justice and equity, at least at the moment. And he's got his setup with Joab, the priest. His sons are working for him. Things seem really good, at least right now. Yeah, and I think we're seeing um, in these deliverances and the way David is ruling even, seeing a fulfillment of what he prayed in chapter 16, which says, gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. So we're seeing that prayer answered in their deliverance from some of these oppressive pagan nations. And um, yeah, this you'll see the repeated phrase, justice and equity. And I think it's important for us to remember that the king that we honor led Israel, at least at the beginning, with justice and equity. Yeah. So let's jump back in time a little bit and go back to Second Samuel. Uh, we jump back to the bringing of the ark back into Jerusalem to begin with. Um, and there's pretty close ties between all these stories. So uh, even even the wording is not that much different. Uh, we, do, we do know uh, Uzzah's dad is a, a Binadab. So um, 
we have a few Abinadabs that we could choose from, but no matter what, none of them are Levites. And so um, it continues to drive home that I think the, the struggle of Uzzah was not just touching the ark, but like even as a priest, he, as a non-priest or a non-Levite, he shouldn't have been carrying the ark to begin with anyways. And so um, it was it was the question of honoring the ark, doing it got how God has designed it and instructed them to do, um, and, and them not really doing that at this moment. But yeah. Yeah. So then they decide to do it the right way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, David, David's a little fearful, uh, leaves the ark for a little bit, decides to finally take it in. And then they, they sacrifice an ark, uh, an ox every six feet. And so visually, I can't imagine this of like, is there just an ox carcass? like a straight Pathway. line of ox carcasses between these two cities, yeah. uh, which would be pretty gross. And um, hopefully they fed all the villagers as they went. But um, yeah, this, this picture, but that's how, that's how intense they took it. That's how important they took this. Like we want to honor God. We will offer a sacrifice. We understand like the, the blood payment that's needed right now. And we will offer an ox every step of the way. Yeah. Every six steps of the way. So they come home to where they're going to leave the ark and David gets home. He's super thrilled, worshiping God wildly and with abandon. Oh, yeah. He's he's dancing and, and celebrating. And um, Mich- Michal, Michal. We don't Michal. know how to pronounce your name. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty bitter here. And, and th- like, this should be a moment. I understand a little bit of why she's bitter, but this also should be a moment of celebration for every Israelite. Whether they back Saul, whether they back David, like, this is the establishment that they've been waiting for. And um, she seems ready to tear him down, even when the accusations aren't even totally true. And David's sort of like, you know what? I'm going to do what I want. Like, as long as it's for the Lord, I don't care if it might look ridiculous for me to dance around. And and those accusations about the female servants are wrong anyways. Like, they're they're honoring. They're honor- they, were, they were honoring me, not shaming me. And, and so, like, this is a moment to celebrate. So... Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's a good challenge for us. Some of us who can be a little more of like the, the frozen chosen sort of type that David's body, at least in this time was expressing what his heart was feeling and he was not ashamed. He was not embarrassed. He did not worry about what other people thought of him or if he's even like watching him or distracted by him. Yeah. I'll even become even more undignified. So, right. So, um, so it's, I think it's a good challenge and reminder for us to also choose to not be ashamed of the way we express our worship to God, um, or even just the words we use when we talk about the Lord. Yeah. And so we get uh, another section. Well, well, we find out Mikhail won't have a child and not only that, but we're about to have that followed up with a promise uh, in David's lineage. And so, uh, we don't know whether that means David didn't do anything to help her have a child from that point on, whether God closed the womb, whatever it might've been. Uh, but, uh, we get the, the section again of, of the Davidic covenant as we talk about it. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and I also want to point out, this is not the most traditional covenant we've seen in, in scripture. Uh, we've, we've seen, uh, with Noah, we've seen with, uh, Abraham, we've seen with Moses, like these bloodborne covenants, like each of the covenants involved some sort of death or sacrifice or offering. We don't see that in the David covenant. And not only that, later on in second Chronicles, it's going to be called a, a covenant of salt. Um, and, and I think as opposed to a covenant of blood. And, and so, um, it's just, it, it involves different because it doesn't involve circumstances per se. There's not a, if you hold your end of the agreement, this is what happens. And if you don't, this is what happens. It is truly a hundred percent unilateral where it's more like a promise. Like we, we do hear it called a covenant, but it's like this just straight up promise of this is what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to do it. 
It's going to happen through your lineage, David. And this is, this is as sure as salt, which is really the, the symbolism in the, in the covenant of salt. And so, um, as you read it, it's like, well, this doesn't feel like some of the other covenants we've read because it, it isn't. It's definitely a different style of a covenant. Yeah. I think what, what stood out to me in reading it this time in Second Samuel is this idea of, of David wanting to do something for God. And, and, you know, we can't really discern the intentions of his hearts, but like, is he doing it out of guilt? Is he overwhelmed at God's blessing? He wants to, you know, kind of even the playing field a little bit but God again reminds him that there's no comparing and he and he changes the focus God does from about what David wants to do for God um, and instead makes these promises so we see the God saying to him I will over six times this is not about what David can do but about what God will continue to do because he is good and yep. he blesses his people yep. and God responds uh, or David responds in prayer again and once again he's humbled and he's sort of hopeful like I, I believe or I hope you're going to fulfill your end. I look yeah, forward to I read this this quote in one of the commentaries I was looking at that says, how easily our imaginations can be captured by and our energies exhausted by what we want to build for God when what he really wants for us is to sit attentively witnessing what he is building so that we may marvel and give him thanks. Yep, it's awesome. So we jumped to the New Testament. Uh, we're in Acts the whole time this past week. And um, yeah, hopefully you've enjoyed a little bit of this action again. Uh, and um, going back to last week's discussion of like the question of what did Apollos actually know when it's referred to like knowing the baptism of John. And I mean, going back to, to John doing his baptisms out in, the, out in the Jordan, he's calling people to repentance. He's preparing the way. He's saying, look, the Messiah is coming. We need to be ready for him. Um, this, this sort of um, repent and, and believe in, in this Messiah to come kind of understanding of things. And I think the language here continues to pick up on that as if um, there's some whether these are disciples of John uh, that are out in in this area in Ephesus mm-hmm. who knew of what John had called people to, which was let's let's repent, let's let's follow, let's let's purify ourselves in preparation for uh, this Messiah, but they hadn't quite gotten to know who this Jesus actually was, and um, and Paul comes along going, okay, like. Yes, John was preparing a way. John's baptism was was a p- baptism of, of repentance and preparation of. But now we have the we have Jesus who has come, and there's a baptism of identity with death and resurrection with Jesus uh, in our baptism. And so um, he he instructs them to 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 really believe in Jesus. I, I think for the first time. Now mm. there's disagreement on that, but I think this is their first salvation in the story, um, and and that is accompanied by. The supernatural. It is accompanied by tongues and prophecy and stuff. We will probably cover a little more uh, when we get to things like First uh, Corinthians and so. Um, but but there's sort of a supernatural accompaniment in these new believers. Yeah, but it's not a. Um, it's it's not right to teach that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless it is evidenced by tongues and prophecy, which some churches teach. But it, it's not correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does happen here, but that's. This doesn't happen every time. Right. And yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting because we, we've seen a progressive picture of Paul, like in his first missionary journey. Um, it's hard to know what successes he really had. Then by the second, he actually has three disciples that travel along with him and he ultimately starts a church too. But but now by this one, there's these these 12 and, and we're actually going to hear them called disciples a few different times in the next chapter too. Um, and and I, I think this is Luke intentionally crafting a, a bit of a picture of of Paul is looking more like his savior more and more as the story goes. And we'll continue to see that by the end of this week. And so, um, yeah, so he has these 12 that, 
um, are now his 12. I love that Luke. Um, cause numbers have been so specific up to this point. And then Luke, I, there, there might've been like 13 or 11 and, and, and Luke goes, there was about 12 of them. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, he doesn't give a specific. And, uh, I think it's too, cause he wants to use the number 12 in the storytelling to present Paul in this way. So, mm-hmm. um, the, the Holy Spirit knows how specific number was. Uh, and so, and then we get the sons of Sceva, which is an awesomely weird story. Um, and God's doing these extraordinary things. Even the Greek, it's like Paul, Paul is doing the, like what's almost called supernatural miracles. Like these aren't just the regular miracles that I think even everybody might be able to do through the power of the spirit. But like, these are beyond that. These are like super and special. Mm -hmm. Like Luke's almost going, Paul's the only one I ever saw do any of this kind of stuff. And, um, it involves healing through these handkerchiefs or whatever. So, um, I think Luke goes out of his way to go, don't expect this to be normative, uh, in, in your life. But we saw this in Paul and it was crazy. And, uh, the kingdom was in breaking and, and, and it ultimately the word got around. And so these, traveling exorcist which already seems like a weird profession in our day but um ultimately they're they're probably swindlers uh, they're probably people that uh, make a living off of um performing possibly fake exorcisms on people uh but they they've heard about this power in paul and so uh and and paul's invoking the name of jesus and so they're like well we'll try that too uh we'll use jesus's name and see what happens and uh it doesn't work out very well for them as as matt chandler would say uh, the fact that you're naked at the end of the fight means you lost the fight. And, um, yeah, and I love the demon's response to them too, where it's like, well, oh, Jesus, we know Paul, we've heard of, but who are you guys? <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's such a good interaction, but it's really, yeah, this, this picture of Jesus's power, which really comes from relationship, not just invoking the name. It's not a incantation. Um, but it's, but it's still over even the evil powers of this world. Like there's true power, um, in the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus or Jesus' work through the Holy Spirit in, in his people. Yeah, I think we see God asserting his His authority over these synchronistic religious practices. And he's like, I'm bigger than these things and I'm better than these things. And so ultimately we see that Jesus is better than magic here um, is one way to put it. And I also, this is like the original book burning, you guys. That's right. This is the very beginning of people bringing their secular or pagan things together and burning them. Yep. Yeah. And so, and then we get the story of the riot at Ephesus. And so, just as a reminder, I mean, you probably read it as you read the text, but this is the town of Artemis. One of the seven ancient wonders of the natural world exists in Ephesus. It was a temple to Artemis. And Artemis is the god of fertility, of, of wealth in some ways. Like this, this was a temple that made a lot of money for the city. And, um, and a lot of people pilgrimage there. Like if you were thankful for that you had a kid, if you wanted to have a kid, whatever it was, like this is where you went. And so, um, this was, uh, hit up by a lot of the Greek and Roman world. And, um, that's their income. Uh, probably most of their income in the city was probably tied to the temple and, um, and to have Paul going around all of Asia and tell people that Artemis is nothing. And, uh, and to have people repent and stop buying idols and stop giving money to the temple is causing problems for these people in Ephesus. And so what it seems like, um, just by the chance that come from the crowd and stuff like that, this might be a Artemis festival that's actually going on. They'd be going to the stadium anyways. Um, and it even seems like some people are there and they don't even know what, why everybody's upset about things and and so um it seems like there's there's um 
controversy because of what's going on uh, around the area, particularly around Paul. And they try to drag these people in and try to accuse them. And um, ultimately, uh, the 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 leaders there. And I'll put a picture. I'll put a picture of the Temple of Artemis as well as a picture of the theater. But ultimately, one of the the leaders in that area were like, "Look, like we can't have a riot," which was true. Uh, Rome Rome wouldn't tolerate the Greeks rioting around anything, and so um, they, they can't have a riot. And this is something that could be handled by the courts. And ultimately, it's kind of dismissed. There's sort of an anticlimactic end to the whole story. Um, right. And but Paul doesn't even preach the gospel, which I just find is really interesting. Paul doesn't really say anything. Yeah, he wants section. to, but they won't let him go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think for a city that's so tied into a, a very specific Greek god that, that was so influential and so powerful, and for this city to become kind of the hub moving forward around the church, uh, at least um, – at least for the first couple hundred years, like I, I think Luke's letting us know, like, hey, like there was a change when the mm. city was Artemis' city and it started becoming Jesus' That's city. So cool, and um, and and just telling that story here for us to know. Yeah. So Paul continues to travel. He ends up going back through some of his old stopping grounds of Philonai, Thessaloniki, Berea, and he ends up with some Bereans of Thessaloniki, Thessal- Thessalonians traveling along with him, as well as some people from Turkey and the Asia area. And um, he makes a stopover. Yeah, starts to teach, teaches for a really long time, <laughs> yeah. and this young man named Eutychus just falls asleep yeah yeah and and it's important to note uh one of the lines here is is one of the main reasons why we worship on sundays of uh they met on the first day of the week to break bread and so um if you want to know the theology of why we worship on sundays that's part that's tied into it um but yeah that paul goes really late at night the guy gets tired so that's what preaching does to people so i know certainly full well that that happens and uh most people don't die though when i put them Fall to sleep and so that's why we don't have any windows yeah. in our sanctuary uh because of this story and um, yeah, he falls out. He dies. Uh, it's very clear that he's dead. It's it's stated very clearly, and Paul heals him, and and uh, becomes a little bit of me like of all the stories we get recorded that Luke records of Paul. Like why this one, and and why is it included here? And I think Luke, part of Luke's goal of in, in his even traveling with Paul. Um, is also to like tell the story of this apostle that did all these amazing things in the name of Jesus and empowered by Jesus, but to substantiate who, who Paul is and to tell Paul's story. Um, and, and, and there's even parallels between Luke and, and, and acts here where, uh, Paul has his 12 disciples and by Luke six, Jesus has his disciples. And, uh, Paul goes on to do these miraculous healings and, uh, and, and Jesus does those too. And then, then Paul raises Eutychus from the dead and Jesus right after that in Luke seven raises the widow's son. And I think there's some parallels, uh, that are, that are happening intentionally as the story is being told, uh, to, to, to paint this picture mm-hmm. of Jesus and Paul having some, some parallels in their storytelling, which will play into the, even the idea of going to Jerusalem and possibly dying there. And so um, yeah. there's, there's sort of a little bit of play, not that Luke's trying to present Paul as Jesus, but trying to show Paul becoming like his, like his savior. Yeah. I think, um, you know, kind of stepping back and thinking about Paul and his journey so far is I've really appreciated Paul's adaptability. Um, he's got plans and they always change. Uh, he was going to go by land and now he's going by boat or he's in one city longer and he's skipping another place. And, and Paul's ministry and work is not bound by where he wants to be or thinks he should be, but he is just wherever he is, he's looking for opportunities to teach and to share the gospel. And it just made me kind of step back and wonder about 
about me and about us as a whole. We may, like, I just wonder if sometimes we overthink what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and we just need to look for opportunities wherever we are to share the gospel. I, I, yeah. I don't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where it's a coffee cup verse, but, um, the context uh, is different in Philippians where Paul's like, look, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But his context for that is like, look, like whether I have a lot of things, whether I have nothing, whether basically like whether I'm put up in a nice house by some church leaders, whether I am in the prison, like I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me. And, and ultimately he, he will speak on even evangelism being a part of that of like, look, like I'm just going to go and I'm going to keep telling people about Jesus and, 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 and I'm going to be empowered by Jesus to do that. And cause he's my strength and I'll go if it's Jerusalem, if it's Rome, if it's Ephesus, if it's shipwrecked on an Island, yeah. good. I got it. I'm, I'm good either way. And so, yeah. I think if we spend so much time trying to find our place of our best contribution or our most, um, successful place we're going to miss out on all of the opportunities god is giving us every day to glorify and worship him and where we currently are yeah though i do think it's interesting that paul's about to like all the counsel from other believers is telling you not to do something but he's like i'm gonna do it anyway like, so, yeah um, he must have had some sort of certainty from the lord that he needed to get to jerusalem but um yeah it, we get him kind of meet with these ephesian elders uh mm-hmm. outside of ephesus but uh, they come down to meet with him and, and it's such a great sort of closing and and I'm sure the scene was incredibly emotional because by the end they're all crying and, and parting ways but it's like look you saw my example I lived with you I held nothing back um, yes I'm going to Jerusalem it's, and I'm probably going to die it's going to be hard um, but, I, but I go there innocent I preached to you I lived amongst you I did all these things so so now as I leave you watch over yourselves so like watch over mm-hmm. your own lives and watch over your flocks there's going to be wolves and they're going to come from the inside I think sometimes we think of all the attacks of the church coming from outside but Paul's most common warning it seems to be from the inside yeah. and um and remember like i love that he even says like remember, i didn't take anything from you that's my example like go help others like um that that's sort of like the final practical application too um and and they're emotional about it this is leadership he has probably spent some of the most time with yeah and he's basically saying like we're not probably not gonna see each other again yeah so i think what we can learn from this prayer for us is anticipate struggle whatever that looks like in our faith. And you guys love the church where you are, love it fully and love it freely. Even if you're going to be here for a year, give yourself away for the church that you were planted in and then make it your goal not to account your life of any value, but seek to finish the course of ministry God has given you and tasked you with. And I just love that that they knelt down and they prayed together. Yeah. So good. So Paul uh, gets, it says Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's not quite there yet. He goes to Tyre. Bunch of people tell him not to go to Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea. He hangs out with Philip and the prophet named Agabus, who does this whole reenactment of him getting tied up uh, by taking his belt and doing it, which feels strange. But he's once again telling him, "Look, don't go to Jerusalem. Um, this is what's going to happen to you." And and I think there's some parallels, as I said, to Jesus here, where where Paul's like, "I've got to go to Jerusalem," and people are saying, "No, you you shouldn't go." Um, and he's saying, "Look, I, I know, I know, I may die, but..." Um, uh, but he says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that, that's what he sort of is, is feeling. Let the will of the Lord be done. Like yeah. what, whatever it is. I mean, sort of like, look, this is the cup I've been dealt with and 
your thy will be done. Yeah, so. and it's, you know, I mean, he just talked about not counting his life of any value. And we read in Philippians, or we will read, uh, you know, Paul says, like, listen, I, I would I would rather go and be with Christ, but for your sake, I'm staying in the body so I can minister to the churches. So maybe Paul is like, I'm done. I get to go and be with Christ. He's not fearing. He's not resisting the death that's coming because he knows it's going to bring him face to face with his resurrected Savior. Yep. All right, Psalms and Proverbs, um, which is four Psalms actually just this week. Um, and so Psalm 96, uh, with the, the little caption is that this is written as the ark is taken into Jerusalem. So uh, this is a story you just read. There's definitely some connection in why this is read this week. Um, there's this repeating of sing and sing and sing. And then uh, some take uh, sort of the last verses of this chapter of like, as, as having this sort of missionary tone, like go preach to the heathens or the Gentiles, go tell them this. And um, yeah. And so some tie it into that, but to me, it means very much this, this worship moment for um, the return or the, the first time the ark's getting to Jerusalem and in their response to that. Yeah. I mean, I really do. I do take those last verses as kind of like a missionary call, but it's this idea coming back to the Abrahamic blessing that we read in Genesis 12 is that Israel will be a blessing to all people and all nations. So as the ark is coming into Jerusalem, it's a reminder that this ark is not here just for this one race of people, but it is for all tongues and tribes and nations and people. Blessed to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. Psalm 115. Uh, this is on the heels of the Ephesus story. We get the psalm about um, idols and and gods in heaven and and God rules over all. And these idols are just handcrafted and they can't even move. They can't even walk around like a like a human. And so why would you worship them? And that's sort of what the psalmist is after. And and God is truly God and in heaven and sovereign over all. Um, so 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 it's like a, a call to to avoid idolatry. Yeah, it's such a stark contrast and comparison. I was just praying through the psalm with a couple people yesterday and the idea of our God being in the heavens and doing what he pleases, comparing it to these deaf and mute and blind idols. Um, and then it says the people who worship them become that way as well. Yep. Um, and thinking about that along with, you know, the great commission in Matthew 28 and that we have all authority in Christ. Um, let's use this under the sovereign power and authority of our God to bring life and hope and light to this perishing world. Yep. And then Psalm 106, mm-hmm. at least the first part of it, um, this is like a, a downward trajectory as you read it until maybe like the last line where it's like, all right, let's remember all the unfaithful things that we did in the desert uh, and and how much of a struggle it was. And lucky for us, Moses interceded. That's sort of how, how we ended in this section. Yeah. But a reminder of that, that just yeah. the disobedience of what it has caused in the past. Yeah, flip back. As you're reading through this every once in a while, flip back to Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 30, these I've set before you life and death, choose life kind of reminders. And it's Psalm 110. Uh, this is certainly messianic. As you read it, you're probably like, oh, that sounds familiar, especially like if we've read in Acts. We haven't read Hebrews yet, so some of the Melchizedek stuff but uh, hasn't come up yet. But um, we, we've seen some of these passages because it is quoted a lot um one of the most quoted psalms in the new testament Um, but uh (laughs) yeah it 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 carries with it all this messianic tone particularly around the the promise to david of like there's going to be one in your line but he's going to be lord as well and so there's one coming to your line it's going to be greater than you um and so yeah all right sarah what should we look for next week i think we should look for in the story just Pay attention to David. Uh, where does he show kindness to people? And how does that stand out? How is that remarkable to some of these pagan nations? And um, in the New Testament, as you start First Corinthians, of course, watch the Bible Project video. It'll be super insightful. Um, 
But Paul makes a lot of contrast in these first three chapters we read about wisdom versus folly. Um, and so just pay attention to what he calls wise and what he calls foolish in those first few chapters. Yeah, maybe I maybe I should have looked at yours because they're the same. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways that even uh, we certainly see chroniclers play up the character of David. Um, but in Samuel here, yeah, we're going to see like just the, the step and step and kindness in ways that are totally countercultural uh, in expectations. And like when he interacts with Saul's offspring, it's like, okay, what, what would be the cultural expectation of what David would should do to these offsprings? And what does he ultimately still do? Um, and, and um, I think that's important to showcase the kind of leader David is versus other leaders. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, uh, if I remember going back to acts, um, Paul, Paul's in Athens and has to go beyond the wisdom, the philosophical wisdom of the time and um, has to go before this whole council and present Jesus to this council of the great philosophers. And we never really hear about much. And then he goes to Corinth and has success. And um, I think that's played out right at the beginning of the book of going like, look, like there's great philosophy in the world and a lot of wisdom, but what I'm bringing you may not be that. And it's God's wisdom, and it may look different than the wisdom of this world. And um, so, so start knowing that the context of pre- teaching into this Greek world that put a high value on wisdom, philosophy, all these kind of things. And, and for Paul to say some of the stuff he does, that's really kind of drawing um, a line between how the Greek world works and how Paul works. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's important. So as you read that, know that that's sort of the play out as we go. So uh, that's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.